I need your help as we get started today. Ready? If it looks like a duck and flaps like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a... Not always. In fact, there are a lot of dead ducks underneath decoys with hunters quacking that would disagree with you. Unexpected changes, unexpected reversals. The Bible's full of that stuff. In fact, we could say... One of the main themes of the Bible is how God reverses the normal expected flow. And so when the Israelites had their back against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are forwarding, it looks like they're dead ducks, but God opens the sea. The first will be last, the last will be first. It's not a death, there's a resurrection that follows. God loves to do reversals in an unexpected, magnificent way. And there's no better book to look at some of those unexpected reversals than the book of Ruth. We started last week, and if you were here, we noticed that chapter one was nothing but a downward spiral. If you weren't here, let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch. Chapter one begins with a famine in Bethlehem. There's no bread in the house of bread. So my God is king, takes pleasant, sick, and dying, and they move to immoral Moab. That's Elimelech and Naomi, Malan and Killian. That family moves to Moab where he's heard that there's food. He takes his family and moves so they won't die. But they're not there long when all the men die. Elimelech dies, Malan dies, Killian dies, and the three widows are left alone. Well, eventually Naomi hears that once again there's food back in Bethlehem. There's bread in the house of bread. And so they begin to travel back. Orpah goes back to Moab, but Ruth commits herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God, and the two widows travel back to Bethlehem. Upon their arrival, it could not be a darker scene. Two widows in a patriarchal society, they're penniless, they have nothing, they can't work to make a living. All we learn at the end of chapter one is that it's harvest time. A little glimmer of hope, but we wonder how that's going to work out. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on your phone or iPad, or you can just listen as I read. It's not too long, uh, 23 verses, but uh, follow along. Now, let me just say, how many of you did your homework? Good, good, well, maybe 20% of you. How many of you forgot what the homework was? Oh, good. Uh, How many of you could care less about homework? You don't come to church to get assignments. I said to you, this series would be a lot more beneficial if you would read the four chapters of Ruth each week. You can even miss a few days, right? Read a chapter a day, and if you read them over, by the time we're finished, you would have read Ruth four times, and the themes, these unexpected reversals, will begin to invade your mind, and you'll learn a little bit more about how God works by looking at the themes in Ruth. So here we go, Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. 
So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just as Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field uh, where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Oh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is one of our close relatives. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Unexpected reversal. It's not as reversed as it's going to be by the end, but all the bad news in chapter 1 is beginning to turn. A dead end's beginning to look up a little bit in chapter 2. Now all we're going to do, we're going to look at some gleanings from chapter 2, and a couple of lessons, and then we're done. First of all, what's up with this whole gleaning thing? Like, what is gleaning? My guess is you don't do a lot of gleaning in your world. Well, gleaning is actually described for us in verse 2 there, when it says, Ruth will go out and pick over the leftover grain. Now, God, in that whole principle of gleaning, he had a word for the rich and a word for the poor. 
The word to the rich was this, and you can read about it earlier in the Old Testament. You are not to meticulously take every kernel of grain from the field. In fact, when you're gathering up the grain, when you're gathering up the, the stalks, well, I'm not a farmer, whatever you're gathering up, if some of it falls out, don't go back and pick it up. Don't go over the field a second time. Don't run the harvester, right, the combine, all the way to the edges of the field. Leave some stuff out there. Now, if you're like the landowner, your thought is, yeah, but I'm going to leave cash on the field? I mean, that's money out there, right? That's produce I can sell. That's food for my family. But if you own enough to own the field, you're not going to die if you don't gather and you don't pick up every scrap of grain. So you are not to meticulously take everything from the field. You not only have the benefit and you've been shown grace by God to own the field, you have a responsibility to not be a selfish pig. That's what it says, selfish pig. It's, it's in the Hebrew there. Don't be a selfish pig. Leave some stuff in the field. If you happen to leave some behind and fall, leave it there. That was the word to the rich. Now, the word to the poor in the gleanings principle went like this. If you don't have enough to eat, if you're really down on your luck or things aren't working out for you, you can go into the fields that have been harvested and a whole bunch of stuff has been left over, you go into the fields and pick it up. Now notice, that's the social safety net of the day. That's food stamps, that's a soup kitchen, that's welfare. Gleaning was the social safety net of that particular culture. Notice, the rich guys weren't told, you need to harvest everything you can, bag up the barley grain, and drop it off on the doorsteps of all the poor people. No, they don't do that. Poor people have a responsibility to go into the fields and work to get what they need to eat, and the rich people have the responsibility to leave something and not take every penny out of what they're making. Isn't it interesting how God usually threads the needle? A word of privilege and responsibility to the rich, a word of responsibility and grace to the poor. God speaks about it. That's how gleaning worked. That was the social safety net. So the poor would not starve to death and the rich would recognize they don't own everything. God graciously gave it to them and they've got a responsibility to care for others. Interesting, gleaning. The next thing you need to learn a little bit about in uh, chapter two is Boaz. Who's this guy, Boaz? Well, we're introduced to Boaz, interestingly, in verse one. Now here's what verse one says. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, I'm not sure when you were reading Ruth or when you just heard me read it, doesn't that seem out of place? Like, why are we introduced to Boaz in verse 1? Ruth goes to glean in verse 2, and Boaz shows up in verse 3. Why are we told about Boaz in verse 1? Well, because the author of Ruth knew that many of you fall asleep when you read. And he wants to say to you, wake up, heads up, be on the alert. You're going to meet somebody in the very near future, and he's going to be really, really important. There's a guy going to show up in this chapter. His name is Boaz. He didn't show up yet. It's like the, bl the blinking yellow light, right? Pay, pay attention, heads up, behold. That's verse 1. We're told in verse 1 that Boaz is a man of standing. What does that mean? That means he's got his act together. And as we read through the rest of the book, and even in this chapter, you see, 
He's a man of moral standing, social standing, financial standing, gracious standing, reputational standing. This guy is somebody. Boaz is a man of standing. And we're also told in verse 1, and it becomes clear, that he's also kind of a, a distant relative to Elimelech. He's not like Elimelech's brother, but they're somehow related. That's the warning in verse 1. Then it comes to verse 3, and it says, As it turned out, it just so happened, the field that Ruth went to was owned by Boaz. Okay, so let's uh, kind of run through this a little bit. Who decided it was time to harvest? Boaz. Who determined she was going to glean that day? Ruth. Who thought that was a really good idea? Naomi. Who was orchestrating all the details behind the scene? God. That's called providence. It just so happened Boaz decided to start working on the field that day. And it just so happened that Ruth decided, you know what? I've got a plan. Yeah, I'm getting hungry here. Naomi, you're getting hungry too. I'll go glean, Ruth decided. Naomi says, even though it's kind of a dangerous job, that sounds pretty good. Why don't you go glean? But behind the scenes, God is working. It just so happened. My guess is that Ruth and Naomi didn't see God's hand and fingerprints all over this yet, right? They were in the middle of the story. We have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. But it's kind of tough because you and I live in the middle of our story, don't we? And there are a whole lot of it just so happens. And a whole lot of it just so happens seem like that downward spiral of chapter one, right? And it just so happened, and boy, life seems to be, and boy, it looks like a dead end. It looks like I'm moving toward death. It looks like this is a cul-de-sac. This is going nowhere. Yeah, but you're in the middle of the story. God's weaving the rest of the story. And maybe one day we'll look back on the story and say, oh, now I see, now I see. If you don't see it by the end of this life, you'll certainly see it in the next one. We make lots of decisions. We decide this, we decide that, we move there. Stuff happens to us that we would never choose. There are no just, it just so happens. God's weaving it together for our good, for his glory, and for the benefit of other people. That's Boaz. Well, the next thing we learn about in the incident is blessing. It just so happened that Boaz shows up in the field. I'm not sure how often the landowner kind of would show up in the field. Boaz, it just so happens, shows up. And it's kind of interesting. He shows up and says to his workers, the Lord be with you. The last time your boss showed up at your cubicle, or your, is that what he said? The Lord be with you. And notice, they respond, and the Lord bless you. Is that how you responded to your boss? Yeah, under your breath, you were saying something else about blessing, right? Notice, he's a man of spiritual standing. He shows up and he says, the Lord be with you to his workers. And they respond by saying, and the Lord bless you. I mean, here's a guy in relationship with his workers. He knows God's part of the scheme. He knows that it's not just his field, God's part of this deal. He's working through him. He's working in the workers. The Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. Boy, wouldn't that be a great way to for bosses and workers to be together, team leaders, small group leaders, and members. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you. Boy, what a relationship. Blessing all the way around. Well, the next thing is the chapter unfolds, a little bit of greening, is provision. 
I was going to put two words. I didn't like how it looked, though. Provision and protection. So Boaz, obviously, is providing. He's leaving stuff in the field because all these girls are following behind his harvesters and are picking up a bunch of stuff. If he was meticulously gleaning, the gleaners wouldn't go to the field. So he's providing for lots of people, not just for Ruth. But then he also is offering protection, right? So he says to his workers, um, who's that girl? Now, okay, men, you can't answer. Who's that girl? Now, Ruth has been gleaning in the field, right? It's kind of dirty and dusty. And is Ruth looking her best at this point? I mean, she's probably, this is like, you know, a micro dirty jobs kind of deal, right? She probably smells like a goat. She's been out there all day. She's not looking her best. Boaz, for some reason, notices her. And we're told later, it's not just how she looks. I know most of the guys, yeah, she was probably really hot. That's why Boaz noticed her. Maybe she was, but that's not what he says. But he offers her protection. Here's like the first HR sexual harassment policy. Here's what he says. Don't touch her. Okay, let me read behind the lines in the Hebrew there. Here's what he says to his workers. You see that girl? If you touch her, I've got a big field. They'll never find your body. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the first sexual harassment policy. All the HR people kind of like this. He offers protection and provision. You know, Naomi even knew this is kind of a dangerous deal, right? All these guys out in the field, the hot sun, the young, the young girls, you know, kind of the outcasts, those that are poor, the exploited working behind. Yeah, it must have been an abusive, difficult situation. Boaz says, don't touch her. And he provides for her. We're learning something about his character, right? He's a provider. He's a protector. That's what Boaz does. But not just that, as we read on, Ruth shows great gratitude. And so here's Ruth. She, she recognizes her own situation. She recognizes she's an outcast, and she doesn't take for granted all of this grace. So here's how verse 10 reads. Ruth bows down, her face to the ground, right? And she said, uh, or she asked, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner, an outcast? Now, let me just tell you a little bit about her resume that she knew very well and Boaz knew somewhat. She was an idol worshiper from Moab that moved to Bethlehem. She had been married before, therefore she was not a virgin. She is penniless. She comes to a different place where she wouldn't be allowed to worship in the temple because she's a Moabite. She's going to be left out. And her mother-in-law is a bitter old hag. Now, I don't know about you, but my guess is that's not a description of the person that most people are looking to marry. Right? A penniless, idol-worshipping pagan who's got a bitter old hag for a mother-in-law hanging around. And, she's got, uh, and so Ruth recognizes that, and she's not disowning that. She just says, why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm an outsider, a foreigner. And all of those long list of things would come under that foreigner word. She feels it. And yet she's feeling the grace and generosity and love coming from Boaz. She doesn't quite understand. Well, the story goes on. And Boaz offers a prayer. Now, he does a few things. But here, here's how the prayer goes. The last three lines up there. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He prays for her. And notice, Ruth may have been really hot, but look at what he did notice. I've been told about all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've taken refuge. Now, I want to show you something that you may not have noticed unless you did your homework. If you look back to chapter 1 and verse 8, you'll notice another prayer. Not Boaz's prayer. Here's Naomi's prayer. May the Lord show kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the house of another husband. Isn't that interesting? Boaz's prayer, unknowingly, is kind of echoing Naomi's prayer. And so Naomi prayed, and she's sending her daughter-in-laws back, and Orpah goes, but Ruth doesn't go, and and Naomi says, may the Lord reward you and may he show you kindness. I know life's really bad right now. I mean, you think it can get no worse, right? But may the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord take care of you. May he richly reward you. And the next chapter, here's Boaz, somebody connected to the family. He echoes almost the same prayer. But that's not all I want you to see about the prayer. I'm going to read it again from chapter 2. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Here's what I want to say. Sometimes we're called to answer our own prayers. Through the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book, Boaz answers his own prayer. May the Lord richly reward you. That's what he does. May he give back to you what you've... That's what he does. As the story unfolds, he's going to welcome her into his family. He's going to become the redeemer. He's going to provide for her. And he's going to provide a legacy. He answers the... You know, sometimes when you pray, God's going to prompt you. Okay, you've been praying about this. Great. Now get up and go do it. Don't always expect someone else's to answer the prayer or that God has to work miraculously. Sometimes God works when we pray. He moves you to answer the prayer. Boaz, Naomi prays, Boaz prays, and Boaz becomes the answer to his prayer and the answer to Naomi's prayer. I wonder what prayers I'm praying today that God says, uh, well, maybe it's time for you to stop praying. It's time for you to start doing, right? I mean, I heard you, and I've kind of... Pr- you go do it. Uh, how about for you? You praying any prayers that God wants you to answer? Lord, I really hope, I pray that you'd, be, that you'd bring these people to our Christmas services. Well, maybe God wants you to do the inviting and bring them. Lord, I've been praying that they would sense their inadequacy and their need for the gospel. Well, maybe God wants you to kind of be part of that, Right? Lord, I'm praying that you would provide for them. They're really on tough. Maybe God's telling you to write a check. Maybe God wants us to answer some of our own prayers rather than just expect someone else to do it or for God to do it miraculously. 
Maybe the miracle is God changing our hard hearts to answer prayer ourselves. Well, that's getting too convicting. We better move on. <laughs> then they have lunch. So Boaz shows up, and you know, they've been working in the field, kind of hot and sweaty. Boaz shows up. And notice, Boaz has lunch with the harvesters and the gleaners. He shows up and has lunch with them. And you know what's really cool? Who serves whom? Boaz serves the lunch. Huh. When's the last time your boss did that? Oh, yeah, if you're the boss or team, when's the last time you did that? His lunch. And at the end of the lunch, you know, he must have given her so much. Maybe she didn't eat much. My guess is she's hungry. She ate a good amount. And he gives her, well, she's done gleaning. She has lunch. And at the end of the day, she takes and kind of, you know, threshes the grain and she's ready to take it home. And can I just say, at the end of the day, she carries home an ephah of barley. Can you believe it? You know how much an ephah is? About 30 pounds. This isn't some little doggy bag from Broad Street Pizza. My guess is you didn't carry a bag from Giant that weighed 30 pounds. And it's almost a humorous picture um, if you knew the weight Ruth is not carrying 30 pounds lightly as she's walking back to Naomi. No, no, no. She's struggling with 30 pounds. You know, she's not, you know, she hasn't been working out a lot where she can carry 30 pounds easily. And even if she could carry it easily, you can't carry 30 pounds a long time. She carries 30 pounds. No wonder Naomi's response is when she gets home, where the heck have you been gleaning today? You don't glean 30 pounds. 30 pounds would feed the two of them for a long time. Something's up. Something's up. They have lunch. Boaz serves. Boaz provides. Boaz protects. Well, after the lunch, the overarching theme is loving kindness. If you're a Hebrew guy, that's hesed, right? Hesed. Uh, hesed is a, a hard-to-translate Hebrew word. It has the idea of loving kindness, that's a good word, but it's almost a summary statement of God's character. That's what Hesed is. Hesed is grace, generosity, even though it's undeserved. Hesed is God pursuing when they don't deserve to be pursued. Hesed is an unobligated giver, God, Giving to an undeserving recipient, that's Hesed, right? A summary statement of who God is. And you know what? Boaz resembles God. That's not coincidental. Boaz is reflecting a little bit of God's character, right? And as you read through the Old Testament, Hesed appears all over the place, right? That loving kindness idea. It's a summary statement of God's character. And every once in a while, we meet these individuals, we meet these people that are mirrors reflecting facets of God's character. And in Ruth, Boaz is reflecting the summary statement of God's character. An unobligated giver giving to an undeserving recipient. Pursuing when they don't deserve to be pursued. Loving kindness, grace in a relationship of love and commitment. And Boaz is picturing something greater than himself, isn't he? 
I hope we're picturing that too. All right, next thing. What do we got here? All right, we're going to talk about redemption now. Okay, redemption is probably the big theme in Ruth. And redemption originally had financial connotations. Now, I know when I say the word redemption, we're in church, you think religion. But that's not how the word got started. And here's a better way to think about it. And and I just checked this this morning. Um, Some of you will give and receive gift cards at Christmas because you buy stuff for people and you never know what they like, and they smile, but you know they don't like it, or you get it and you don't like it, right? So we give gift cards instead. Do you know I checked? Billions of dollars, over $20 billion has been left on gift cards. So if you have all those, give them to me. I'll figure out how to use them, all right? Well, redemption is about the gift card, right? Redemption is Something is put on the card that can be used by others. And here's how the financial connotations work. In the Old Testament, they didn't have social service systems, right? They didn't have bankruptcy laws, didn't have any of that stuff. So if you got yourself in a really bad situation, you could not accumulate debt forever, right? Unlike the United States government. You can't accumulate debt forever. Eventually, somebody says, aren't you going to pay your bills? Well... When you have to pay your bills, something had to happen. And so if a family got in debt, an individual got in debt, the property was taken by the creditor. They come and take your property, right? They foreclosed, now it's mine. If it's really bad, you don't have property, they take you. And they usher you off to work for someone as a servant, right? an indentured servant, and the money that you would be paid as a worker goes to the person you owe the money, and you stay there as a servant slave until your death paid. But God had this amazing idea in the Old Testament. There was such a thing as a kinsman redeemer. I don't like guardian redeemer, that's what the new NIV says. It's really a kinsman redeemer because the idea was it had to be a relative, right? You had to be kin and it had to be a redeemer. And here's how it worked. A redeemer, a family member, could come along and put money on a gift card, give it to you, and buy the property back. Now it's in your name, right? Since it's God's, it's always allowed to be redeemed. If you've been sold into slavery, a relative who has the means could come along and pay, you, pay for your freedom. That's how redemption works. You know what redemption implies? Four things. Redemption implies a need. Boy, we see that need with crystal clarity in Ruth, don't we? Ruth and Naomi are in a hopeless, helpless situation. There are two widows that are penniless. They have no way to make a living. They have no protection. They have need that we cannot imagine. But you know what? Their need pales in comparison to our need. We have need to be reconciled to God. We have need to be forgiven of our sins. We have need for righteousness that we can't go back and relive. We have a need that we can never meet. Redemption is about recognizing the need. That's step one. But then not just recognizing the need, there's a price to be paid, right? If you're going to buy land back, there's a price tag goes back. The land is worth something. What's the value of the land? And we understand how Ruth and Naomi's price is going to work in the next couple chapters because we're going to learn next week that there is a kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz. And he hears, hey, do you want to redeem? Yeah, 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 I'll redeem the land. Until he knows the price. Well, you know, there's also a daughter-in-law from Moab You're going to have to take her, and you know how that works. You have kids with her, and if she has a son, then the land that you purchase actually goes to him. And Oh, I'm not paying that price. That price is too steep. 
and he won't pay it. Price is steep, right? How about uh, our need's pretty great. How about the price to redeem us? There's a whole lot more than that 20 billion left on gift cards. How about the price being uh, the life of God's own son? That's the price. Ouch. But it's not just the need and the price. There's also um, the worth or the worthiness of the one to redeem. Here, here's what you need in order to be a redeemer. In the Old Testament, or in the, here, here's what you need. You need willingness. Right? The one that's closer, he's not willing. But you also need the means. You need the motive and you need money. I mean, lots of people would have thought, you know what, I feel so sorry for Naomi and Ruth. I really want to, but if you don't have any money, you can't redeem them. You need willingness and you need means. Boaz has both. He's got the means. Remember, he's a man of standing, financial standing, moral standing. He's got the, he's got the means and he's got the willingness. And boy, in some strange way, he points to Jesus, doesn't he? Who certainly has the means. And amazingly, he is willing. He says, I know what the price is. I'll pay it. Gladly. Wow. One last thing on this whole uh, Redeemer thing. That principle throughout the whole Bible is a family deal. You ever notice that? It's a kinsman. You've got to be kin. Now, you can be kin and not a redeemer, but for the principle to work, yeah, to be the redeemer, you're the closest kin. And if that one doesn't, you kind of go down the line. Now, do you think it's just coincidental that we read all those family terms in the Bible? We are adopted into God's family as children. Oh, yeah, there's the family thing again, right? We're adopted into the family. And as members of the family, we now become heirs. We could become heirs. Just like Ruth and Boaz's kid will become heir of Boaz's stuff. So as children of God, we become heirs of Jesus' stuff. Wow. But it's even a little more intimate than that, isn't it? Boaz becomes Ruth's husband. Ruth becomes Boaz's wife. And another picture we read in the New Testament is the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. He comes as the heavenly divine husband to win and purchase his bride. Inheritance, intimacy, forever. Boy, Ruth's pointing way beyond Ruth, isn't she? Well, you may be thinking at this point, well, how do we respond? I'm glad you asked, right? Let's go back to verse 10. Here's a good start. She bowed her head with her face to the ground. That, friends, is the posture of worship. The word worship actually means to bow. She worships, and she's amazed by the fact that someone like her, a foreigner and an outsider, would be provided for and protected by an unobligated giver. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And if we live with that attitude, the next step is, now let's go 
And out of that posture of worship and gratitude, live out that relationship and that story. Ruth and Boaz point forward. As we live, we can point backward to that ultimate story that changes forever. Let's stand and pray. Father, forgive us for sometimes <laughs> reading accounts in the Bible and thinking that that's just people that are so different than us from way back then and disconnected from us. And yet, Lord, when we read the pages of Ruth, we see ourselves in the pages. We see you in the pages working behind the scenes and we see a clear pointer to Jesus, our ultimate Redeemer, who sees our need, has all the worth and is willing to pay the price and is able to pay it. May we accept it and live in gratitude for what he's done. We pray in his name. Amen.